Good afternoon. This is a very beautiful sight from up here, I want to tell you. <laughs> All your sweet faces. So my name is, um, I usually uh, use the um, honorific Aya, Aya Santusika. And um, I live in Northern California. Uh, after my bhikkhuni ordination, or actually the year of my bhikkhuni ordination, we started Karuna Buddhist Vihara. So it's a small forest monastery, now located on 14 and a half acres of redwood forest. And I live with one other bhikkhuni, Aya Chittananda. And, um, and right now we have an Anagarika training with us. So we look forward to um, offering training for more women as we go along. So I've been in robes about 18 years and a bhikkhuni for 11, no, yeah, 11 years. Just to get started. All right. <laughs> they also gave me a mask when I came in, so I don't know if they want me to speak. <laughs> oh, just to echo what Aya Santusika said, I felt kind of the stillness when I came in here, and it's only day two. It's amazing. So I hope we don't blow it for you by talking too much. <laughs> so many of you know me. I'm Ven Chanda. Uh, ben for short. <laughs> Venerable, um, and uh, so I also ordained 18 years ago in Myanmar, and uh, came in contact with Ajahn Brahm about 14 years ago, and left Myanmar to go and search out this mystery person. I had no idea really who he was or where he was, <laughs> and um, a few years later, after being in Australia some time and taking the Bukuni ordination he asked me to go back to England which I'd left at the age of 19 and start a monastery there so uh, many of you know about that and have been supporting us already um, but last year we got a, a, a vihara a property for the first time after eight years of hard work living from house to house <laughs> and putting a great deal of groundwork in we finally uh, bought our own place which is now Anukampa Bikuni Vihara in, uh, in Oxford. So, uh, like Aya, you know, the intention is to start to offer more teachings, but also to train women who don't have an opportunity in the UK at all to take the full ordination. So, I'm the only Bikuni in the country, and uh, another Bikuni is coming to join me next year for a few months. And uh, we hope to make the opportunity available to, to women and to all people to be able to um, benefit from the monastic lifestyle and actually take the full training up if that's their aspiration. So, um, yeah, so I'm based in England and I come here every year for the Rains Retreat. Uh, that's kind of the deal. <laughs> so that I actually get three months of solitude and time to deepen my practice. So I'm sure we'll speak more about... Uh, our paths at some point. Most probably there's a question there. Um, but 
but shall we go to the box? Do you want to go for it? Dear Venerable Aya, when you body scan at the start of meditation, do you focus on one side of the limb first or both together? So I think like both arms or both legs maybe. Um, oh, left toe versus right toe or both legs, both at the same time. I see. So um, your... So, so my most of my teachers are from the Thai forest tradition, which, of course, you're all familiar with, as Sajin Brahms' training also was. But there are quite a few different ways of doing body scans. So this question is very much about Ajahn Brahms' approach, I would think. Do you want to? So I, I, I actually am. Um, a little bit spontaneous with my body scan. I kind of work with it the way my body feels at the time. I might take it very slowly, just down the front of the body and then the back of the body and then down through the center core inside. That's one approach. Um, I think however you do it, just notice how it feels. If you're using, you know, the idea of the left toe and then the right toe and so on, or, you know, just try it. See if it really brings relaxation and calm. See if there are uh, pleasant feelings that arise from it. And if it's uh, not, not resulting in that, then make some modifications. And one thing to be aware of is that sometimes we can get very, um, I want to say, regimented in our approach. And then instead of relaxing, we're really just focused on doing it right. So watch out for that because you really just want to have the results of a completely calm, peaceful, happy um, body and mind. You want to add anything? Okay. All right. Dear Venerable Chanda, it's so lovely to see you again in person. Thank you. And all of you, <laughs> whoever I've seen before. Uh, I missed your sutta class on social harmony relating to parent-child relationship. There's a sutta that states that giving immense riches or physically carrying a parent on one's back for a hundred years could not even begin to repay a child's debt to the parent. But if a child could begin to share, show or teach the parent some bit of dhamma to help the parent understand that clinging is the cause of suffering, that this would go a very long way to repaying the debt to one's parents. In the context of my 88-year-old father, who's been an atheist most of his life, and it, in home hospice with probably six months to two years to live, kindly advise on what you would consider to be most skillful and beneficial dhamma 
to share with my father with much metta. Yeah. Well, when I started practicing at about 20 years old and I did a lot of vipassana retreats, whatever that means, a lot of meditation retreats, quite strict and lots of meditation and I got so much benefit. It changed my life. And I thought I was, uh, I really had something wonderful to share. So the first time I visited my parents, I just wanted to tell them that they had to do a retreat. They must do a retreat, you know. And surprise, surprise, they were a little bit defensive about it. <laughs> they said, well, you know, do you think you're better than us? Or, you know, I, like, we're quite happy, we're quite content, we don't suffer. And slowly over the next few years, I realized that that wasn't the best way <laughs> to attract them to the Dhamma. So over time, they started to get more curious because they could see the changes in me. And then they would actually come to me and ask a little bit about it. You know, first of all, they wanted to know it wasn't some kind of sect that was dangerous and that was going to change me forever or make me uh, lose my hair. <laughs> and, uh, but over time, they could see the change. So they got more interested, and they actually came to visit me. And now, when I bring Ajahn Brahm over to England, they even come to some of his talks. At first, I suggested that they do, but now they just come. They make their plans, and then they tell me, oh, we've booked our tickets. We've booked our trains. So my suggestion is that just as the Buddha really didn't advise monks and nuns to go around preaching, um, you just embody the qualities of the Dhamma around your father. You just treat him with kindness, with care, with immense gentleness and tenderness. And in that way, you're actually sharing your practice with your father without using words. Because if you start to tell him, you know, how he should be thinking, how he should be feeling or behaving at 88, <laughs> it's unlikely to work, you know. And, and moreover, he may feel judged or may feel even concerned that he hasn't, you know, done the right things in his life. So I would say, you know, be kind and show him um, that non-judgmental, unconditional love. And secondly, um, as he is approaching the end of his life, try to talk to him about the beautiful things he's done in his life, the, the way he's treated you as a child and growing up, you know, even if there's some mistakes he's made or even if you have a difficult relationship from time to time, it would be strange if you didn't, right? I mean, a parent and a child relationship is often uh, complicated in some ways. So try to talk to him about the good things that he's done and the qualities you see that you admire and, um, and remind him, you know, that keeping these things in mind will lead him to a good place. Sometimes I ask people, like, how do you... Feel, especially when children come to our vihara, actually, and they say, offer the food. And I say, how did you feel when you did that? And they say, oh, uh, happy, happy. <laughs> but sometimes they, don't, they won't realize unless you ask them. So see if you can ask your dad, you know, about the times in his life that, um, that gave him joy, that gave him a sense of meaning and purpose, that kind of thing. So I think that's probably enough. I don't remember the exact sutta or the sutta class, but... Um, I don't know if Aya has anything to add because you actually cared for your mom <laughs> for a very long time. I don't know. Is <coughs> this is also for Venerable Changa.
as bhikkhunis, have you experienced much sexism? Yes. Is that enough? <laughs> um, gender discrimination is definitely something worth understanding and um, not making too much of it because what's more important is awakening and developing those beautiful qualities that Venerable Chanda was just talking about. And But it is important to be able to, uh, in our own ways, um, resist that um, in ways that are appropriate to the Dhamma. And, you know, sexism isn't the only thing that we need to look at in this way. The Buddha really was clear that as human beings, we're um, on the wrong track if we're discriminating against people based on all kinds of different qualities, color, caste, social standing, gender, there's even a translation in the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, Sutta number 98 of the Seta Sutta, that uh, mentions, this is the latest version of the wisdom publishing, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, that talks about the ways of mating. So even sex, sex, sex what do they call it? Sex, sexual orientation. You know, because the Buddha said none of these things are what discerns, what what dis what makes a person noble or not noble. What makes us noble is practicing, practicing sila, samadhi, panya. And so we want to be able to recognize that we want everyone to have the opportunity to really practice and to not be put down for any of those reasons that the Buddha said, these are just labels. These are just um, things human beings make up to put themselves above someone else. And so we want to be careful about that and really care about each other, regardless of all of those other differences that really don't matter. I just wanted to add a little bit um, to what I said, which was really skillful and beautiful and I think for me also as a bhikkhuni, having experienced being incredibly marginalized as the only bhikkhuni in the country where I live, um, it's really important to keep sight of why I'm doing this, you know, and not to make an identity around being a bhikkhuni and the only one. And, you know, you can get into a bit of a trough thinking that way. Um, and at the same time, realizing that although it shouldn't matter, doesn't matter ultimately about race, gender, sexual orientation, ability, age, etc. There are impacts, <laughs> there are implications. And um, for me, the biggest uh, difficulty as a bhikkhuni is a lack of conditions to practice. And yes, it's all very well to say we can all get enlightened, but as the Buddha taught, it's a conditioned path. Um, it's not that we can do it or can't do it. It's not about ability or lack of ability. So much of it is just about having the conditions, having you know a safe and quiet place to practice, having enough food that's suitable for our body that doesn't make us sick. Um, 
for bhikkhunis, of course, having people to look after our basic needs. We can't handle money just as the bhikkhus don't. We don't cook for ourselves unless it's kind of an emergency situation, like uh, during the COVID pandemic or something like that. The Buddha said, in times of uh, danger and famine, uh, monastics can cook, including the monks. But essentially, we're arms mendicants, so we depend on others for our um, existence, our survival. So it does have an impact if there are no places to practice. And both of us have actually um, had difficulty finding somewhere to base ourselves and as a result have started our own places. So obviously that takes a great deal of work and time and energy. Uh, it's incredibly demanding of us. You know, we have to learn to teach before we feel ready necessarily. I think both of us love to share the Dhamma, but I'm sure we would have liked to be enlightened first, you know. Um, the great monks that you see in the world did have those years and years and years of training in forests with great masters. We haven't had as much. So it's altogether more difficult. And both that can give rise to the challenges that can lead to good qualities developing if we can manage it. But unfortunately, a lot of women either don't manage to find an opportunity to ordain or later disrobe. Um, the vast majority of bhikkhunis uh, that I know and other kinds of nuns as well have disrobed due to a lack of conditions, not finding a place to actually live their monastic life. Whereas if you speak to Ajahn Brahm, he'll say the reason monastics disrobe is because of lust, it's because of, you know, uh, the opposite or the same gender. That is usually not the case for us. So, so they are real differences, I think, uh, that we face. And of course, we've both taken the attitude that we want to make a change and we want to do something to uh, make things easier for other women in the future. And so our efforts are fairly big and the uh, results are coming slowly. <laughs> yeah, I've been to see Aya Santusika's beautiful monastery, Karuna Buddhist Vihara, both when you had the place rented in San Francisco and also, sorry, not San Francisco, it was Mountain View. Yeah, but that, that part of California, is it? Northern California. And also the forest hermitage that you've now managed to get. And it's beautiful. And uh, hopefully we'll also be able to have like a rural place that's much bigger. We only have like three rooms in the, in the house. Uh, so I'd like to invite all of you, but you won't fit at the moment. <laughs> so, yeah, so... Yeah, it, it's, it's not the monastic life I ever envisaged. I don't think I would have ever considered uh, leading a community or being a teacher, you know. Most uh, monastics, they just want to disappear. So, anyway. Yeah. Everything she said is so true. And... Um, just to give you an example, this three-month vasa that I've been here at Jana Grove is the first time in 15 years I've had a chance to have a fully supported three-month retreat. And it's like there just aren't very many places that a person, that a bhikkhuni can go for that. And uh, it's really a wonderful gift. And from the beginning of my listening to Ajahn Brahm maybe 25 years ago, uh, he would say, monks and nuns, monks and nuns, monks and nuns. And everywhere else, all I heard was monks. 
and he would talk about the nuns. The the Dhammasara monastery is really outstanding in the world of Theravada Buddhism. We just don't have places like that um, around the rest of the world, and and that's what we hope will will evolve. <laughs> All right. So this question. I think should be for both of us, really. Uh, it's addressed to me. Thank you for your kindness. May I ask you a question about your story of becoming a bikuni? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I am kind. I also have sometimes a bit of a pedantic streak. So just to say that I try not to think of this path as becoming anything. And it's interesting because when I first told my mom I want to go to India, she said, you'll be, go to India and become a Buddhist nun. And I was a snotty teenager. I said, I won't become anything. Because I thought that was silly, you know, becoming or being something. <laughs> so um, for me, it's been a path of gradual renunciation. And um, it did start with that trip to India when I was 19. Um, or you can trace it back. I mean, it's so funny giving stories because I realize this is just what we add to things to try and make sense but actually who knows probably the seeds were planted in many previous lives I'm pretty certain um, so it happened really I think the, a search for meaning happened in my teens when I was about 15 I suddenly you know the pressure was on to choose subjects for your next exams and to figure out university and what you want to do with your life and I just thought how can I figure what I want to do with my life when I don't even know why I'm here I don't even know really the purpose of being here. Like, is it to have a family and have a job and just like my parents, then get a house, then get, I don't know, a mortgage and get older and retire? Um, well, I mean, obviously, most people do that and nuns also do that. They get older, they, you know, I don't know if we do ever retire. But um, I just didn't really know the purpose of it and I wanted to find out. And I think I was struck by the suffering that I sensed in the world and that felt very visceral to me at that age. Maybe you can say it was hormones, but it felt a bit deeper than that. So I wanted to understand what was going on in my mind. And I kind of suspected I'd have to leave England for that because I couldn't find answers around me or anyone to talk to. It was a real crisis. So when I was uh, 19, with my best friend, we went to India. And I will cut a long story short, because I have spoken about this before. And, um, you know, it is a story. I don't know if this is really what happened or not. But uh, I heard about meditation retreats that were 10 days and in complete silence with really um, a lot of discipline. And at that time, I was a very kind of free-spirited, quite uh, adventurous young woman so I'd been kind of all over by then I'd been up the Himalayas and to the full moon parties and didn't get into big trouble with anything but you know I'd kind of uh, seen a lot of life and it was almost like a process of elimination okay it's not this it's not this it's not this this doesn't make me happy this doesn't make me happy and then I heard about these retreats and I was fascinated I thought what will happen to my mind if I just sit with myself for 10 days without any distraction, wow, you know, will I kind of dig myself in a hole or will the mind kind of bring itself out of suffering and start to um, really understand what's going on? 
So I was just like, sign me up. <laughs> and in the very first retreat, uh, the teachers did speak a bit about, of course, the Four Noble Truths, about dependent origination, about really how we do create a lot of suffering for ourselves. And I realized that, my goodness, you know, suffering is a part of life, but there is a way out. It was just such an incredible relief to know that the Buddha was true to that. He was honest about it. He didn't just say, oh, there's something wrong with you, you're suffering. He said, no, you know, that's the nature of existence. There's going to be suffering. But there is also a way out, and it's something that everyone can practice. And I actually practiced it in that retreat and got the benefits. You know, I came out so deeply moved and, you know, things like, I don't know, little conflicts that I'd had with my parents as a teen. I was writing them letters and sort of saying, look, you know, you never did anything wrong. It's not a, a sign that there was a problem that I traveled. It's a sign that you really supported me and gave me that confidence and courage uh, to explore things for myself. And... Um, I just continued the practice for the next 10 years or so, living in India, mostly in Nepal, and serving a lot on retreats like this, you know, being the manager or the uh, kitchen manager, and all the time keeping my ears and eyes open for a place to ordain. So it took 10 years to find somewhere initially. So again, that's just how difficult it is as a nun. I would have been ordained probably at 23, 24, if there would have been a place, but uh Finally, after about 10 years, I heard about a place in Myanmar where I could ordain and I had instant confidence that this was the place for me. So that was in 2006. And uh, yeah, since then, I think many of you know, but I was there for about four years. Then soon after that, I heard about Ajahn Brahm and just had a very strong sense that this is my teacher. I have to go and learn from him. So that's why I'm sitting here. <laughs> right. So yeah, I guess a short story would be suffering and a wish to find freedom from suffering. That's the reason that I'm doing this. Yeah. I uh, I think we need your story. I think I've always been interested in spiritual um pursuits questions uh understanding how to be a good person, understanding the deep questions of, of life. Um, but I wasn't satisfied at all with the religion I was raised in. It was a pretty fundamentalist Christianity in the, in the Midwest, in, uh, in the U.S. But when my father died suddenly when I was 40 years old, then I really, um, had that sense of urgency to dig deeper. And um, I really wanted to understand what happens when you die. Because I wasn't at all prepared for that. My whole family, they live to be very old. His father, my grandfather was still alive. Some of his aunties lived in past 100 years old. And we thought he'd go on for a long time, but he died at the age of 69 very suddenly from a cardiac, um, cardiac uh, thoracic aneurysm. Not cardiac, but anyway, you get um, And I had been married, and I had two children, 
And my son at that time was halfway through college. And he and I both were so impacted by this experience that we both were looking for um, spiritual, a spiritual path. And he found Buddhism, and I entered an interfaith seminary in California to become a minister. He traveled to Thailand eventually and got ordained when he was 24 at Wat Pananachat. He got ordained at Wapapong, but he lived at Wat Pananachat. And I went to see him and got to spend time there. Um, I went often and spent significant amount of time with the monks. And because my son was a monk, I had, you know, opportunity to really um, talk to the monks a lot and also visit other uh, great teachers in Thailand. And that's what helped my faith to develop. So at the same time I was going through this four-year seminary, whenever I had breaks, I'd go to Thailand, and and it was a, a beautiful um, four years of deepening practice, understanding Dhamma, developing my faith. It was incredible, and... And then I knew I wanted to become a nun. And my life changed. uh, The circumstances of my life changed in a way that I could do that in 2004. And it was 2005 when I first took robes and continued on from there. It was hard to find a place to do it. it, And then it was hard to find a place to really continue on, uh, you know, on towards higher ordination. But um, but it happened, and I have so much gratitude for all of the disciples of Ajahn Shah that have been my teachers, and also some of the the monks in the Dhamma Yud order also. And it's just it's um, it's like finding gold. My partner of many years is very critical of me and controlling. They did not want me to come to this retreat. If I'm kind to him when I get home, will he stop trying to control me? I'm worried I'll fall back into my conditioned behavior of trying to please him. Thank you. Um, I've been through this. So I understand. And it depends. I mean, um, there are half a dozen questions I wish I could ask you. But without that, to just say in general, I don't think kindness will cause him to stop wanting to control you. Um Wanting power and control over another person is actually the root of all abuse, um, domestic violence. And it's important to try to assess just, you know, how serious this problem is. Um, if you're, it, first and foremost, be safe. 
If you feel like you're in danger, leave if you can. If it's more psychological, which is still damaging, see if you can find some expert support to advise you. Um, If you want to contact me, you can write to me at centusica at karunabv.org. That's my email. Karuna for Karuna Buddhist Vihara and then bv.org. Um, if you have someone else that you can confide in who has experience, that's great. And just because it's, it's, um, it's very important to not have this kind of um, pressure in your life and lack of ease. And it might be possible that, you know, his conditioning could change. It just depends. It depends. And so it's not easy to give um, the answer that will really help you. I think you're on the right track to ask. I think knowing that it's not beneficial to you or to him to continue in this way. And that it's good to find um, how to take steps towards a resolution that leads to mutual respect and trust. And you're really not alone. There are so many relationships and so many people who have this same kind of same kind of problem. And, you know, you can look at what is underlying that for him. You know, a lot, I mean, it's conditioning, just like, you know, the other things that drive us. Um, And it's important to see if there's any um, chance that he'll want to change. Sometimes, even with, you know, a marriage counseling or whatever other kind of steps you might take, person will say they want to change, but they don't really change. They don't really want to change. And so if that's the case, you may want to think about leaving. Venerable, what do you find difficult to live the life of a monastic I think I answered that Um, I spoke mostly about finding conducive conditions and actually living the life of a monastic in conducive conditions I find completely wonderful meaningful (laughs) Uh, freeing conducive to developing a lot of inner happiness, a lot of loving kindness. Um, so it really depends on the conditions. Uh, even when the conditions are difficult, though, I think living the life that really calls you and that really um, means a lot to you and benefits others is just the biggest blessing. 
so even, you know, I went through a big burnout a few years ago, like proper adrenal fatigue. Everybody says these days, oh, today I'm feeling burnt out. I don't mean like I'm feeling a bit tired. I mean, I had adrenal fatigue. The, you know, the charts showed that you're meant to get your adrenaline coming up about here. And it goes like this during the day. Well, mine started down here and it just flatlined, completely flatlined. <laughs> and, you know, I've been through health crises. I've been through not having anywhere to stay, but something has always kept me going. And I think it's not only the sense of purpose and meaning and the sense of a calling, it's also a great deal of faith. Um, because from the time I started the practice, really, I felt I understood why I'm here and what I have to do. And then when I met my first teacher, my preceptor in Myanmar, he said to me, if you ordain, is it for life? And I just very easy as anything said yes. You know, and I think having said that and meant it to a great teacher who I had enormous respect for gives some kind of power to what, what I'm up to. So um, I fall back on those things and it's amazing. But once you do renounce, and I guess that's why I like to think of it as renunciation rather than becoming something once you renounce it's almost like the momentum is so strong you can't imagine going back it, it, it's almost impossible so the only times I really feel despair are when I wonder whether my monastic life is viable or not then I feel despair yeah yeah but even then you know we have the Dhamma and that's the important thing and I've seen so many practitioners come to the Dhamma you know, get benefit, and then for a few years they kind of lose track, they go off the track, or so they think. <laughs> and whenever they sort of make contact, you know, and say, oh, my practice has kind of gone down the drain, I've started breaking my precepts, and I always say, don't worry, you know, you'll get back. Because I think once you've tasted this, and once you know there is a path, it's very hard to forget. And it comes up when you really need it, you know. You'll hit a time in your life, and that will be the only answer. So it's a privilege. But yes, the difficulties, I think, for me are probably the uh, finding the conditions. And, and at the moment, it's, it's practical, okay? So I'll just say I work probably, <laughs> I start at about 7 in the morning. This is after the morning meditation. And I'm looking at my emails before breakfast because it's too many to finish otherwise. Then I meet my guests and I do the work meeting, have conference calls, have more emails, organize events, have lunch, meet the lunch guests, give counseling, have a little rest before I completely flag and then the same thing all afternoon I'm busy 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 because it's not just running a place we're trying to raise funds for a proper monastery where I can have seclusion and um, a place that can attract other women to come and have a peaceful life so at the moment that is also difficult just the sheer amount of work involved and of course being alone you know as a monastic we're meant to be together when we leave uh, our lives or um, you know, certainly simplify and make a lot of changes. We, we, our relationships with our families change. It's not that we don't still have mothers, fathers, sisters, daughters, sons. You know, we don't cut off from them, but our relationships with them change. And in a sense, the Sangha becomes our family. You know, when we take the ordination, we say, may the Sangha lift us up out of compassion. Anukampa Upadaya means lift me up out of Anukampa, out of compassion for me. So we, our refuge is the Sangha, and uh, we need each other. You know, it's been wonderful to spend the rains here together. 
um, two bhikkhunis in a monk's monastery. You know, it's great to have our brothers, but there's some things that only bhikkhunis can really share and understand, you know, how it feels to be here uh, as women in, in a monk's place. And we do do things differently, you know. We, we maybe do have uh, a slightly different relationship to, say, the Vinaya or to the way we teach. So it's uh, really important that we have our sisters around us. Uh, what in the Vinaya for nuns? What is in the Vinaya? Do you find the mo oh? What do you find the most unfair for women? I don't know that anything's really unfair. I wouldn't say because I think we have to see it in context. And the Vinaya, I have confidence that the Buddha um, uh, laid down these training precepts. And I say that carefully. Some people think they're like laws or rules, but they're training precepts uh, for our own benefit and our freedom. So if there is something there that seems overly strict or stricter for women than it would be for monks, then sometimes I wonder is it, if it's the interpretation we're giving to it. Is it the translation? Is it the way we hold it? Is it the context of ancient India you know, that made that rule uh, or that training necessary? such as, for example, um, walking alone. Actually, it says between villages. You know, one shouldn't walk alone between villages. Sometimes it's translated as among. And because of that, some monks say, oh, it's impossible for women to be bikinis because you have to go everywhere yoked to another bikini. And, of course, it's hard enough to find one bikini, so I'd be finished <laughs> in England. I couldn't go anywhere. I'd be housebound, and even that wouldn't be allowed, I think. So um, so that isn't what it means. It means to go between villages. And in ancient India, those villages may have been in completely different areas where the language was different, where, you know, no sensible person would go um, because of the risk to their safety. And so this was there for the protection. So if we look at what that means now, to me it would mean going somewhere that I would feel obviously ill at ease, unsafe, and I'd be endangering myself. And if I endanger myself, I endanger my whole community because there'll be no teacher, there'll be no leader anymore. So I see it as an invitation to protect my well-being, and I hope other bikinis protect theirs, but I don't think it's uh, supposed to inhibit our, our ability to make choices for our benefit, you know, and go on arms round um, in villages or in towns. Uh, travel by flight to Perth because <laughs> there are people around, right? Yeah. So, would you like to answer the same? Yeah, I think I just want to both echo and maybe add a little bit more to what you were saying. I I had the same immediate thought: the unfair. If it's unfair, I feel like it's the interpretation of the Bakuni Vinaya that makes it. Um, rigid and uh, and actually um, really fuels that sexism. And it's unnecessary. If you really understand the Vinaya for the bhikkhunis, it's all about being protected. And, you know, the Buddha had these various conditions he wanted to inspire faith in the faithless and maintain faith of the faithful and, you know, do things that would create ease in the community and, you know, help help people develop. This Vinny is a container that is the 
the the most conducive to awakening and um and it is i don't see the vinya as a problem at all it's the it's the interpretations that make it possible to use some of those rules almost weaponize them you might say and so that's unfortunate and we have uh, plenty of uh, support from various um, scholars in the in the Theravadan world that see the Vinaya more for what it is and how uh, how it describes a really beautiful life that can be lived by by women following following it. Honored and joyful at your presence during this retreat. Yeah, me too. I have been practicing forgiveness for past hurts, especially towards an angry parent. While I'm able to relate more peacefully with them now, I catch uh, aversion arising within my mind occasionally. Could you share advice on patience and forgiveness? Oh. Well, you're really on your way. I see, and I actually feel it <laughs> in the question, um, this development of, of patience and forgiveness in yourself, which is beautiful. And, you know, when the Buddha said patient endurance was really the highest austerity, that that's true, and it's it's so important to the whole practice. The, of the path, the patience with ourselves as those uh, conditioned patterns continue to come up and to remember that when that aversion arises, it's not, it's not yours. It's not you. And you can, you know, sharpening the mindfulness, you're already noticing when it comes. Just don't own it. Don't identify with it. Remember that it's a passing. It's old, and it passes away. It, it comes and goes, but it's it's old. And the more you just see it with that same kind of forgiveness and tenderness and and not pick it up, the more it'll fade. And there's another... Um, kind of uh, approach that I like when we have feelings arising that are challenging to really locate where you feel it in your body. It's in your chest or your stomach or wherever and be present with that physical feeling, that feeling in your body until it passes away. And that's a that's a very good way to let the, the whole um, kind of complex of conditioned experience that, you know, kind of comes up, you know, dissolve. If you stay with that kind of feeling until it goes away and you don't do anything to engage it other than observe it with mindfulness, then it will lose its power. And this is true of all kinds, even very intense feelings. And... They, they come back again, but they don't have as much force. So I really, it sounds like you're well on your way to um, freedom from this, but it, it can take 
it can take a long time and it's okay. Just keep, keep receiving it, not acting on it, not owning it, watching it and letting it go. Uh, what is considered craving? Anything that makes you suffer. <laughs> A person requesting for his favorite food during his last leg of life, would it be considered craving? <laughs> I think you can do that. Yeah. I mean, even for us as monastics, time and again, Ajahn Brahm encourages me to, to say, you know, to my supporters when they say, is there anything you can eat? Is there anything you can't eat? Tell them. Because we really do have to look after our body. So, you know, obviously the whole purpose of the path, I hope it's obvious, is to lessen craving, especially towards anything in the realm of the five senses at first, right? Uh, sight, sound, smells, taste and touch. Um, because we can have a certain amount of gratification you know, there's a certain amount of pleasure that we can experience through the senses, but ultimately it doesn't last. And it's not really satisfying in the way that peace of mind can be, you know, even any amount of meditation. You may all feel that, you know, you're not very far on yet on your practice, but we walked in today and it was like, so peaceful. And you've not left, so probably you're already appreciating even the fact that you can't get your big, I don't know, chocolate smoothie shakes with ice cream or noodles. I know Singaporeans love noodles and stuff. Sorry, I'm putting ideas into your heads. But, you know, you'd rather be here, right? You'd rather be here just sitting nice and maybe not even that comfortable, but sitting on your seats and listening to shaven-headed nuns. <laughs> so there's a difference there in the quality of happiness that you can receive through uh, turning the mind to wholesomeness compared to craving for things. So, you know, there's a difference also between having preferences, I would say, like if it's uh, just a choice of food um, or even a choice of clothing, you know, choose something that's comfortable, right? But when it goes into, I have to have the latest design, you know, if I get that, then it's a sign that I'm successful and this person doesn't have it, but I'm doing great, uh, you know, or you feel really miserable because, I don't know, you don't have as big a house as your neighbor, then, yeah, there's a certain amount of craving and misplaced, uh, um, a misplaced sense of where happiness really lies, let's say. So rather than judging yourself for that, just develop the inner happiness. And in my experience, again, why I call this path of, path of renouncing, I said it started with suffering, but it also really took off when I realized that the more I practiced, the more I meditated, the less I needed anything in the outside world or anything that was really stimulating. You know, My first big love as a teenager was music, probably all my life. I was into my rock music and all kinds of music and spent hours putting all my favorite songs on little cassettes to take with me, you know, on the buses in India. But then after my first retreat, I just found it was a distraction. I didn't need it anymore. And it wasn't a condemnation of that music. I just felt more at peace to be present with what was around me. I wanted to be there with the chickens on the bus and the goats and <laughs> all the jostling and the noise and, you know, the horns that beep every corner in India. And uh, I just wanted to be present to life. 
obviously there were no televisions. I think I sent my first email about six years into my travel ever in my life when I was 25. Uh, that's a big suffering. <laughs> Internet. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, you can't really uh, overcome cravings through trying not to want what you want. <laughs> you have to be honest to it. But just notice that sometimes there's this agitation, you know, or, or there's a kind of sense of need. And see if you can be with that. The way that I was beautifully explaining it, get into your body and notice it when it arises. You know, notice the tension or the kind of lack, the lack of contentment that gives rise to that craving. And just see if you can stay with it, you know. See if sometimes you can use a bit of restraint maybe and, you know, have your favourite food sometimes but not always and see how does that feel. So as monastics, we don't get to choose our, our food really. Again, we can choose to a degree, like we can say what's uh, healthy for us but, you know, if it doesn't come that day, we have to be satisfied with what's there. So, yeah. Contentment and, and satisfaction, you know, inner satisfaction are more um, more nourishing than having uh, our senses uh, satisfied, if it's even possible. Anyway, we have not so long left, but we'll try and do a few more, yeah? Yeah. Did you say the last leg of life... Comfort food is okay on your last leg of life. Um, there's a lot of things that are uncomfortable in the last leg of life. I'm I'm almost 70. I hear you. It's okay. Dear Venerable, did Achan invite the Davis down to cook our lunches? <laughs> we promise we won't tell him if you said anything. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a sign that your senses are waking up. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of devas here, though. Whether they're in the kitchen or not, who knows? All right. We don't have uh, a lot of time and quite a few questions yet. So, I don't know. What, what do you think? Should we just speed up a bit? Yeah? All right. Uh, all right. Many Dhamma talks mention that dukkha arises in the heart, unsatisfactoriness, lack of fulfillment, not having things the way we want them to be. This is the reality to which my friend shares that the reality is too much for her to accept. She's gone through some hurt in her past. How can my friend see the Dhamma or reality in a happier way? Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I'm getting a little tired and I know we have to speed up, so I'm going to be brief, but... Um, I think it's important to respect where a person's at most most of all and not to try to bring the point home if she's not ready to understand it. Um, again, you know, if somebody starts to meditate and feel a little bit of peace inside, then they realize this path is not a miserable path. It's not a pessimistic path. It's a path that leads to freedom from suffering. And even if you don't realize that you're suffering, you know, and you can't accept that life, that the reality, as you say here, is, you know, the, that things are never going to be the way we want. Um, when we meditate, we realize, oh, actually, you know, maybe there were things in my life that caused suffering that I can now adjust. 
So little by little, you know, we start to understand uh, the nature of suffering, the nature of unsatisfactoriness, but we also have something else. So of course it's too much to hear that, you know, there's no happiness in this world or, you know, what did Ajahn Chah say? Joy at last to know there's no happiness in this world. Joy because he had the inner joy. Yeah. So try not to, um, at least I find from my own experience that I have to try not to talk about the doctrine to people, but rather encourage them to come and see for themselves. That's what the Buddha did too. He said, Ehibuku, ehu, Ehibukuni, come and see, come and see the Dhamma. You know, and also please don't, uh, don't force it. Just be a good person, be a kind friend and, uh, show the results of the Dhamma in the, in your own conduct. And then that way they'll get attracted. We have four questions and two of them are similar to things we've already talked about. What inspired you to become bhikkhunis and how was the, what was the journey like? Could you please say a few words about what you're doing and how we can help you? So I'm, I'm just going to say a tiny bit about, you know, um, visiting bhikkhunis, um, encouraging people to um, you notice that there, there is something happening and uh, uh, supporting it in whatever way, participating. Visiting is really nice because then you can really get a sense of what happens in the monastery and how the bhikkhunis operate. We're, we're different than monks uh, in some ways, and some people really benefit from that. I think you're going to get this one, my friend. And this one I will take. Do you want to go first or second? Oh, no. Okay. Dear Bhikkhunis, had you experienced a jhana prior to becoming a nun? I'm worried that if I have more and more deep meditations that I will want to be ordained as a monk, which is unsettling as I love my partner and family and I don't want to leave them. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a yeah about jhana. I'm not going to answer that. Um, certainly samadhi. You know, there, there. You know, you have various experiences. And what I want to say about you leaving this world um, because we see the suffering in it, um, but something happens. Even that kind of. I did have the experience of really um, seeing the the dukkha uh, in all kinds of things that we engage in as human beings. And then I saw the dukkha in family. And it changed how I felt about everyone in my life. But the change was one of a lessening of that kind of attachment that is so personal. My daughter, my son, my parent, whatever, my partner. And it became much more of that unconditional love. So you don't have to change your whole life. You can... Take the path all the way to the end as a layperson. You might want to get ordained right there at the end. I don't know. <laughs> but 
but it's it's the it's the deep understanding and embodiment of the dhamma that will actually be better for everyone in your life including you so don't put the brakes on your practice orient it towards being um a source of real unconditional love to the people in your life. And um, I have a wonderful relationship with my daughter who has two grandchildren and my son. And I'm there for them to support them. But when something goes wrong, um, last year my granddaughter had a ruptured appendix. And... uh, I came to help the family, and I know she could have died right there. It wasn't a problem for me. I knew my role would be to help my daughter because she was not prepared for that. And so the more you practice, the deeper it goes, the less attached you will be, and the freer those people that you love will be and the more you will be able to support them. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I also, just to add very briefly, it's just to echo really, um, I think the path works in beautiful ways and by the time you would reach that point, you'd be ready. (laughs) You know. Okay, Um, I have a chronic illness which will eventually get harder, I'm not sure, better, which will eventually get better. Oh, that's good. Is that right? Usually chronic illnesses get worse, don't they? They'll get better, but you'll still die. That's the problem. (laughs) It's a bummer, isn't it? (laughs) You get better like a year year before you're 18. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) But I struggle with the impact of my illness, that the illness has on my family, particularly my partner. Can you advise me? I'm more used to being the carer than the cared for. Yeah, isn't it amazing how sometimes these roles have to change and maybe that's one challenge or opportunity for growth that your illness can offer, you know, how to allow yourself to be cared for, how to allow yourself to be loved and to receive the kindness of others. Ajahn Brown um, mentioned a beautiful phrase this morning, which was actually something I'd said to him this retreat. He said, sometimes when you're sick, it's almost worth it for the kindness that you receive. And I actually said that to him, this rains, because I was really quite ill in the sense that I kept having this really severe reflux and incredible amounts of belching due to, anyway, lots of conditions that had eventually resulted in a hernia that made it almost impossible to sit. I'm very lucky today that something shifted and I can sit for a while now, but my experience on the retreat has been that if I sit for more than, I don't know, a few hours a day, it worsens the condition so that I can't really meditate for the next couple of weeks. And as a bhikkhuni, that's pretty challenging, right? Um, But the kindness from everybody I've received here has just been so touching. And um, 
you know, whatever I've needed has been provided. But more than that, people have said, what else, you know? Okay, you've told us what kind of food, but anything else, you know, is there anything we can get you? And just that acceptance has taught me so much. You know, it's taught me to accept the condition, to accept the fact that this retreat didn't look quite like how my retreats normally go. Normally I like to be sitting 10, 12 hours a day effortlessly. I just love to do it. And this time I had to learn to practice in different postures. I had to do more walking. I had to keep my mind states wholesome. I realized, you know, it's not my body that meditates, it's my mind. So I carry my mind everywhere, every moment of the day. I can always be making peace, being kind, being really gentle, which includes patience, which includes just being present with what is at any given time. So I have had to learn to receive the kindness of others, uh, not to feel guilty about that, you know, and uh, not to feel guilty about disturbing my dear fellow bikuni in the cottage when I've had those uh, <laughs> bouts. You've been very, very gracious. And, um, and more than anything, learn to care for myself. You know, this is, this is the challenge, especially if we have an identity of being the carer, the one who cares for others. I'm also a very giving, caring, kind of other-centric type of person. And I also see there's a shadow side to that. You know, there's an aspect of I need to be able to help others to be worthwhile, to be valued, you know, to be loved. Of course, that's not the reason that I care. I genuinely feel for the suffering of others. and But sometimes I forget that that's a, that care has to extend to myself. So this may be part of your practice. Um, to notice, you know, that you are used to being the carer and to see if you can stay with some of the discomfort around that. And maybe rather than apologize, <laughs> you know, for the trouble that you think you're causing to everybody, actually thank them for the care that they give to you because people love to help. People, just as you love to care for others, I'm sure your partner loves to care for you. So rather than, you know, kind of get into a sort of feeling of not being worthy or, you know, having to explain yourself or apologize, maybe just tell them how much you appreciate their care at this time and the tables will turn. You actually say you're getting better, which is wonderful. So there'll be a time when it's your turn again to give and it's their turn to receive. So this changes throughout our lives. And um, part of that is also the practice of being bhikkhunis. We have to learn to receive. We go on arms around with our bowls. We have to um, make ourselves vulnerable to the kindness of others, you know, and it's such a blessing. I think we see the very best in humanity uh, we're really often on the receiving end of a lot of generosity. It supports our very existence. My very life is sustained by the gifts of others. This should be reflected upon again and again, the Buddha taught. And it's really true. You know, If there wasn't goodness in this world, the Sangha couldn't exist. So uh, see if you can receive some of that kindness and care and even more internalize that. Yeah, Internalize that towards your body, towards your mind. So, and just to end with the, with the question about how you can support us and support bikinis, I would say get to know our projects, get to know what we're doing, come to the teachings. We both offer a lot of online classes. Um, I have some leaflets outside you can have a look at. You've given your website. They can go to karunabv.org. Ours is Anukampa Project. Anukampa, again, compassion that lifts you up. 
uh, anucamperproject.org. We have Ajahn Brahm coming every year. Ajahn Brahmali sometimes comes to visit. We've got hundreds of uh, teachings on our channel. So you can actually come on Zoom or you can just engage. And if you are ever, you know, in England, of course, visit. But otherwise, we have many volunteers from overseas and people who can uh, get involved remotely. But more than anything, I would say it's really your practice because that's what we're doing this for. It's to try and further the Dhamma, to you know, bring the teachings of early Buddhism as best we understand them and in the way we practice them to as many people as possible. So that is the best way to support the sasana and to be one of this fourfold assembly. You know, we have now bhikkhunis, bhikkhus, lay men, lay women, and also gender non-binary people. So I think it's more than the fourfold assembly. It's just the worldwide assembly that covers all kinds of people. So yeah, just keep on practicing and, and generating goodness in your lives and see if you can share that goodness with all those around you and wherever your heart is called. So yeah, I, I wonder if I has any closing words. I would, for my part, like to thank everybody and just wish you a, a really good retreat. And, uh, yeah, I'll be leaving on the 31st. You'll be leaving tomorrow. Oh, I will be one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so goodbye and keep going. Yeah, thank you all for your practice. It's really beautiful to uh, be here and feel it. And I hope that... The rest of the retreat goes very well for all of you. Safe journey back to where, where you live and take good care. <laughs> you don't have to restrain yourself with nuns. <laughs> I've taught my community how to do it completely over the top sadhus and it, it really is. I noticed I was the loudest the other night, so come on. We'll try and... <laughs> we'll try and uh, Show you how you how it goes. All right.